It's the summer special of Uncle Jim's World of Bonds, the double length edition with the free packet of popping candy sellotape to the front cover, together with an Uncle Jim's World of Bonds lapel badge. All free, it's got my face on it, although like my official work photograph, this will be a photo from 1997 when I had brown hair and was devilishly handsome. Anyway, it is the 25th of August 2023 and so a bit late for a summer special, it might need to be a back to school rebrand for this edition, but it has been a crazy summer for fixed interest, so you are better off out of it if you've been away. And let's start then with the summer bond, uh, bond market action. Coming into June, 10-year uh, US Treasuries were at 3.6%, having already started to sell off to high yields in May. But by mid-July, they're at 4%, and last week, they hit a new cyclical high of 4.3%. Uh, with the long bonds, the 30-year government bonds in the States, um, at nearly 4.5% and two-year bonds trading just above 5%. Important to note, this is not really about higher inflation, nor is it about higher inflation expectations, because, as you know, US CPI has fallen from 9% in June 2022 to about 3.2% today. Core inflation is indeed higher than that at 4.65%, uh, but it's also falling um, steadily there too. And uh, inflation expectations, we measure these through break-even inflation rates, the difference between nominal bond yields and TIPS yields, inflation-linked bonds. They're steady at just above 2%. So today they're at 2.26% at the five-year uh, area, and that's not far above the Fed's target of 2%. So if it's not inflation, then what is it? Well, it's the real yield component by definition. If it's not the inflation component, um, it's the real yield component of nominal bond yields that has risen really sharply in August. So a month ago, the 30-year real yield, i.e. the inflation-adjusted cost of US sovereign debt borrowing, was 1.6%, and last year it hit 2.1%. So effectively, if you buy that long-dated tip, you get paid 2.1% every year plus inflation, whether inflation is uh, 0, 5 or even 20%, you get 2.1% plus that. That's the real yield. So what's going on? What is it that drives the rise in a, a real yield? So you can think of it as a function of the, the relative demand for money versus the supply of money, demand for savings, the demand for money to you know, finance investment. In a world awash with cash and liquidity, where companies are retrenching and they don't want to invest, real yields will be exceptionally low. And think of the COVID period as an example of that kind of environment. And when the reverse is true, when demand for money is really high, um, companies, governments, individuals all have to pay up to borrow. And you can think of this long-term dynamic being driven by things like demographics. So for instance, in the world where there are lots of people saving up for their pensions, um, they're buying income-producing instruments like corporate bonds, government bonds, property, etc. That's going to drive down real yield. So it will drive up the price of those assets and drive down the yield that you can obtain um, for uh, you know, investing in those things. Um, other things like government borrowing dynamics also have an impact. So when governments are borrowing a lot, when debt to GDP ratios are really high, that should result 
in higher long-term real yields are the things like the, the balance between whether government, uh, central banks are doing quantitative easing or quantitative tightening will also have an impact on real yields. So we've moved from a QE world where central banks are buying government bonds to a QT world, a quantitative tightening world, where central banks are sellers of those bonds. Um, and as a result of that, you'd expect long-term bond yields to, to be higher. And things like corporate demand for money are also very important. And some people think that measures like the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which is effectively a fiscal stimulus that's stimulating green technologies, um, is raising the cost of capital for um, the overall US economy because those innovative green technology companies are now demanding more capital and having to pay up for that. And that's raising the overall cost of capital for the US economy. We also can't ignore other factors. Um, while you're away, um, Fitch Rating Agency, uh, probably the third most important after Moody's and Standard & Poor's, but uh, probably disproportionately important in areas like sovereign debt and banks. So Fitch downgraded the US government's sovereign credit rating from AAA to uh, AA minus. Remember that we'd already seen back in the last of, um, debt ceiling crisis, uh, you know, getting for over a decade ago now, that's when the US first lost a AAA credit rating. Fitch has now joined the party and downgraded to AA plus, and it quoted both the high and growing debt burden of the United States government, but also credibility issues around, quote, repeated debt limit standoffs and last minute resolutions, i.e. The, the, the shenanigans in Congress to, to um, raise the debt ceiling to avoid a last minute default in the US government, and also to quote, a steady deterioration of standards of governance. Again, related to um, what goes on in Congress, but also maybe an allusion to what's going on now. You, if you open your newspaper or the, any website this morning, you'll see Donald Trump's face um, poking out from um, a prison mugshot. Anyway, the other thing that leads to higher um, real yields has been speculation that the Fed itself thinks that real rates should be higher than they have been in the recent two decades. If you go to the Federal Reserve uh, New York website, you know, one of the Federal Reserve banks, they estimate the natural rate of interest over the long term. This is what's known as R star. So if you see mention of R star, that's what people are talking about, the long term interest rate in the US economy. So in the 80s and 90s, and indeed all the way up to the global financial crisis, the long term rate of interest was almost identical to trend US growth rates. And that actually used to be the market standard way of pricing US Treasuries. You know, if you ask me what my model was back in the day of whether US Treasuries were cheap or dear, it would be uh, relatively small deviations away from uh, on the nominal side of things, nominal bond yield deviations away from potential nominal growth rates. Um, you'd get some uh, natural uh, dislocations as growth surprised the upside or downside and bond yields could move up and down uh, away from that. But your fundamental anchor for where nominal bond yields would be would be related to the nominal growth rate or real yields, real growth rates. 
So prior to the global financial crisis, um, we we did see a really good relationship there. Post the GFC, a gap did open up. So by 2012, um, the R-star estimate was below 0.5% for the US economy versus a trend growth rate of one and a quarter percent. And that kind of gap persists today. So no longer are they on top of each other. There's a a gap of 75 basis points or so between the two. So um, at the moment, the R-star estimate in the New York Fed model, um, there are various models that they publish, so have a look at them, is about 1.1% compared to a trend growth estimate of 1.75%. Remember that US trend growth is expected to be higher than the other developed market economies, thanks in part to better demographics, a higher birth rate, etc. Whereas birth rates and fertility rates in Europe are, are, are falling and are exceptionally low. You can see, though, that our star estimates of 1.1% is still 100 basis points lower than that market real yield that we're seeing trading in the 30-year tips that I mentioned earlier of 2.1%. And later on today, actually, Powell is speaking at Jackson Hole, which is that central bank powwow up a mountain, um, kind of equivalent to Sintra for the European Central Bank in Portugal. So a big kind of talking shop um, where people present papers and think about long-term uh, goals and uh, ideas around economics. It's suspected that Powell might allude to our star, at least validate the market's suspicion that the Fed will be higher for longer, even though the expectation is now that the Fed Fed funds rate is at or very near the peak. There's still a percentage chance that the Fed does hike one more time, but I think that the the market consensus is that we see a hike rather than come down, we see a plateau of higher rates. That is um, a big bet to make, to be frank, because history shows us that normally when the Fed hikes and stops hiking, it cuts very aggressively thereafter. Um, But nevertheless, we shouldn't be surprised to see the Fed dot plots edge higher on their long-term Fed funds expectations over the next uh, few sets of meeting minutes. All of this uh, talk of higher R-star, though, does come at a time of some danger for the global economy. First of all, we have continued uncertainty around lags in monetary policy. We've had you know, 5% worth of US rate hikes, hundreds of basis points of rate hikes in other developed markets, with the exception of Japan, the last holdout, of course. And we haven't seen recessions yet, despite what the yield curve inversion models would have told you historically. Does this mean that we're going to get a soft landing, i.e. a growth slowdown, but without a recession or a rise in uh, the unemployment rate? Or is it just that we haven't yet unwound the build-up in savings from the COVID years or that people haven't yet finished their so-called revenge spending on holidays and leisures to make leisure time activities to make up for being in lockdown in 2020, 2021. And we don't know the answer to that, but it is different from most of our expectations of what would happen given those huge rises in interest rates that we've seen. So lags are still uncertain. In the US, though, most people are on mortgage rates fixed for decades at an average of under three and a half percent. You know, that's the average interest rate that people are paying. So way lower than Fed funds. And that's despite 
the new mortgage pricing being at over 7% for a 30-year US mortgage at the moment. So you could argue there's no need for immediate distress in the US housing market, but who can afford to move now? Who can afford to double their uh, monthly mortgage payments and buy a new house or move geographically if they want to improve their employment prospects or or whatever, or if they get laid off to uh, find a new job? Activity um, in housing is therefore extremely low at the moment and activity in housing markets has a big multiplier, a big positive multiplier effect on the overall economy. You know, if you think about what happens when people move into a new property, um, who benefits there? You know, banks do well, mortgage brokers do well, builders do well, decorators do well. Um, carpet makers, fridge manufacturers, even spending on cars and clothes uh, positively correlated with a house move. So if nobody's moving, there will be a big impact on economic activity and the housing market is slowing aggressively in the US uh, at the moment. So while I've talked about August's bond sell-off, the last few days have seen a bit of a bond market recovery, to be fair. Um, It's only a handful of basis points, but it does seem to be a bit less optimistic uh, view of the global economy. And that's probably based on the fears that the slowdown finally is on its way. Um, People are looking in particular at the PMIs. These are the purchasing managers surveys. They're kind of universally weak at the moment in developed markets. Uh, Many of those measures, both on services and manufacturing, are now below 50. This is a diffusion index where you ask people whether they're optimistic or not. Historically, a reading below 50 indicates economic contraction. And that's what we're seeing uh, pretty much across the board at the moment. So don't be surprised to see growth slow. And the final thing that is flashing danger signals uh, bright red is China. Now, coming into 2023, if you'd have said that to me that US yield curve is inverted, but that China's reopening fully post-COVID in a big bang, um, you'd have put all your growth chips on China and bet the house against the United States of America if you were purely betting on growth outcomes. And of course, that would have been a terrible bet for 2023. You know, everyone was forecasting Chinese growth um, 6%, 6.5% and above for this year, poo-pooing the official Chinese growth forecasts of 5% or so. Um, but China is experience, uh, experiencing a panification moment at the moment. Uh, failing demographics, this ageing population means that the long-awaited uh, consumption boom, a rotation away from manufacturing into service sectors, uh, is weaker than people had hoped for. And of course, the property bubble looks a bit like what happened in Japan at the end of the 1980s. It's bursting there. And finally, um, you know, one of my, my most listened to podcast was about Evergrande. That was a, you know, a long time ago now. It first got into difficulty. It's finally filed for bankruptcy, owing about 19 billion US dollars in foreign debt, more domestically. Um, Country Garden, the biggest private property company in China, has recently missed its debt payments as well. And others and private wealth managers are also failing to make payments. So the People's Bank of China has cut interest rates again, but the scale of the problem is huge. And um, 
It's interesting also to note that China last month stopped publishing the youth unemployment numbers. Youth unemployment is a bit of a canary in the coal mine and also a source of political instability for any um, for any economy. Um, you know, when the young people can't get jobs, that's a big worry for policymakers, not just for what that means economically, but also what it means for stability um, politically in your in your economy. So in June, the youth unemployment number statistics showed that over 20% of China's urban youth in the cohort 16 to 24 years old were out of work compared to an overall unemployment rate of 5.4%, again higher than the US uh, economy at the moment. From here on in, we won't know how that develops, but um, you know there is growing talk and new talk of political intrigue within the Chinese government itself helped along by the BRICS conference in South Africa earlier this week. President Xi, who was there in person, failed to give his speech at that conference. And uh, don't ask me why, but the internet thinks that something is afoot there. Anyway, rather than being a tailwind for the global economy in 2023, as people thought it was going to be, the Chinese economy looks like it's a bit of a headwind for the global growth outlook right now. Whilst we're talking about long-term rates and R-star, it's important to note that um, those higher real rates ought to be having an impact on other asset class valuations. Everything, of course, starts with, you know, we think of ourselves as important in bond markets. We are. It's the risk-free rate that determines what happens in other asset classes. If the risk-free rate, government bond yields, goes up, then other substitute assets prices should fall and their yields should rise. After all, why should you uh, put your money in risky stuff when you can get uh, a risk-free rate by giving your money to a a government uh, of high credit standing? You know, why should you do that? So that puts this rise we've seen in the risk-free rate for the US government and other developed market governments ought to have an impact on equity market yields, on private assets, on property assets, etc, etc. They should also be seeing their asset prices fall, their yields go up um, in some relationship to what's going on with long bonds uh, in the United States. And we haven't really seen that, at least not for equities. Um, The equity risk premium is the difference in yield between government bond yields and the earnings yields on stocks. And that has fallen quite aggressively this year. You know, you'd expect it at least to uh, stay constant. It hasn't. It's fallen down dramatically. So what you can look at is you look at uh, at actual earnings yields or dividend yields or forward earnings yields on stock markets. So looking at the S&P 500 forward earnings yield, i.e. market expectations for what earnings are going to do in future. In COVID, that differential got out to about 700 basis points. So government bond yields fell, equities sold off, that forward earnings yield went up to 700 basis points. And it had been higher than that, uh, 2011, 2012, 800 basis points, global financial crisis, a similar kind of level. So at times of uh, distress, we get out to to that kind of level. Um, Now though, we're at the lowest level of that equity um, risk premium since the equity market bubble before um, the global financial crisis. So then 
we've got down to below 1%. We're kind of at that level now, and it's been falling throughout 2023. So this is showing that there's still a degree of exuberance in stock markets, despite what we in the bond markets might envisage as a poor economic outlook. Um, perhaps the, the stock market's been helped along by some AI exuberance. Um, look at the NVIDIA stock price. Uh, which is, uh, I think, up about 230% um, this year. Um, so, you know, that that is going great guns. Credit spreads, too, are really well-behaved at the moment, despite um, what you might think is seemingly unrelated credit events in 2023 and some other events, you know, thinking of Trustonomics at the end of uh, 2022 as well. Some shocks to volatility, some shocks to corporates. Um, perhaps you could say that many of these events are linked to rising bond yields, rising cost of capital. But you can look at the defaults that we saw in the US regional banking sector earlier this year. SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, etc. Credit Suisse and the defaults that it experienced on its junior debt. Casino, the French supermarkets are uh, in trouble at the moment. We've seen a number of European commercial real estate names get into difficulty. And of course, the Chinese property sector that we talked about earlier. There has been a bit of weakness in credit in the past week. But if you look at European investment grade, spread of say 150 basis points for the index us dollar investment grade 125 basis points they're both 15 20 basis points tighter in spread than they were a year ago and you can say that's justified by defaults remaining very subdued credit metrics like debt to ebitda and interest cover are all fine and at the same time as that the, the rising government bond yields has led to increased demand for credit from, uh, I think, from institutional investors and pension schemes, that's true. For retail investors, though, um, the wholesale market, um, there are lots of substitutes for corporate bonds at the moment, like bank accounts. I was looking in the UK at fixed rate deposits uh, yesterday. You can get over 6% on a three-year fixed rate deposit. Remember, that's got a government guarantee if you know, up to 85 grand, which is plenty for most retail investors. So it's as good as government debt. You can get 6% on a three-year uh, deal there. In Italy, BTP bond yields uh, the short end at three and three-quarter percent. So for the wholesale market, we haven't seen as uh, the industry as a whole the kind of flows into corporate bonds that you thought you might have given the rise in government bond yields and therefore the rise in corporate bond yields because those substitutes in entirely risk-free uh, alternatives are really high at the moment. So it will probably need to see bond yields start coming down again at the government level in order to see that big rush into, um, into credit. But nevertheless, the credit outlook is steady, albeit that when you see this number of idiosyncratic, supposedly separate numbers of credit events happening around the place, you start to wonder whether there might not be something uh, deeper going on and maybe some more risks on the horizon. Now, on 20 minutes in plus, I'm going to leave it there. 
There is plenty more to discuss um, when we start season 11 of Uncle Jim's World of Bonds in, in September. Uh, things I'd like to have talked about today include the superconductor uh, mystery over the summer. Have we discovered uh, really uh, amazing superconductor events? We've also seen some developments in fusion energy, nuclear energy, uh, where it looks like we've achieved net positive gains again um, in fusion nuclear um, power so good news there potentially in emerging markets a lot going on as well Um, not least a new far right outsider for the presidency in Argentina who wants to dollarize the Argentinian economy so abandon the Argentinian peso entirely and and move to the US dollar kind of uh, been lots of talk over the summer about the other way is the dollar dead are people going to move into chinese renminbi and uh, and other currencies rather than us dollar and i think a lot of people are pretty skeptical about that anyway in argentina they want to go the other way and adopt the us dollar if that right wing outsider gets his way geopolitically as i say we've got trump's mugshot on the front of the the papers this morning a lot of instability coming with those trials if we have them ahead of the us presidential elections Uh, at the end of next year what's going to happen there we've got more instability in Russia following the crash of uh, Goskin's jet this week in the UK we've got better than expected government borrowing numbers in part thanks to inflation which has pulled more people into higher tax brackets Uh, but nevertheless that's leading to some speculation about tax cuts here in the United Kingdom Uh, Trustonomics part two, uh, anyone? Anyway, European inflation is also falling, um, but is still being supported at at relatively punchy levels. I think probably mainly by a domestic tourism boom. Um, Flight prices in Europe are up 32% year to date, sorry, year on year. But the ECB, in our view, is probably likely to, like the Fed, be near the top of that cycle. They are talking about being on hold from here on in and uh, watching and waiting. But um, the, the risks are there to the downside, probably for rate cuts, if history is our guide. And Japan is worth talking about more in the final quarter of this year, going in the opposite direction to most developed markets with further modifications to its yield curve control program, likely uh, as growth is strengthening there. The yen remains incredibly weak, though, and I'm not really sure what's going on there. That's it for economics that's it for politics that's it for bond markets for this episode i I do always like to finish the the summer special um with a a quick cultural outlook though what i've been doing what i've been watching it's been oppenheimer in the cinema that was brilliant um godfathers one and two on the airplane uh over the course of the summer holidays i haven't seen barbie yet uh that's on the list for the remainder of the summer holidays Forest, a decent start to the season, but a nervousness there amongst me and others. We have signed a World Cup winning Argentinian footballer in the last couple of days. We do also, sadly, need to say RIP to Trevor Francis, who died over the summer, the first £1 million player. A million pounds probably a day's wages from the Saudi Arabian Premier League these days, I'm sure. Music-wise, my big prediction, um, Goth is back. Uh, I think goth is going to be the massive trend for the remainder of the year. Everywhere you look, Susie and the Banshees reforming, the Mission touring, the Cult touring, Sisters of Mercy touring, special editions of uh, Uncut magazine about goth. I think it's going to be the winter of goth. You mark my words. That's it for season 11. 
uh, so for season 10, sorry. Um, I'll see you all for season 11. Enjoy the rest of the summer holidays. Bye. <laughs>